the groove with Scotty Dubler. Friday, November 6th, 2020, episode number 159. It is already November, Carter. It is, dude. Like, man. I don't know about you, but I've already given up on the rest of 2020. Yeah, it's a write-off. You know, I think we just wrote this whole year off. I don't want to see nothing else from this year. Let's move on. Yeah, it's already like 2021 it. in my mind, um, and we'll get there eventually. It'll be here before you know it, you know, um, how the off-season usually goes. Not a whole lot of uh, stuff going on in the in the flat track world uh, this week, right? There was one little piece of news from American Flat Track. I think it may have came out right when we dropped our episode. I think they do that on purpose. I'm talking <laughs> about American Flat Track. But it seems like they dropped their news after we dropped our podcast. So Kevin Crowther is now the chief competition officer for American Flat Track. Uh, he was the director for AMA Supercross and AMA Pro Racing Relations. Yeah. So he's got plenty of experience. I'm anxious to see if he's going to come in and rock the boat, if he's going to make big changes, make any changes, or what's going to happen. So we'll have to see how that goes. So congratulations to Kevin on his new position. Nice. He's got the whole offseason to uh, prepare and uh, get ready for uh, for what he's going to do in 2021 and beyond. Look forward to seeing how he impacts the sport because, you know, everybody brings a little bit different flair. Um, so it'll be cool to see what he brings. And, and he, you know, jumped in. He, he was an observer for the last few rounds. So okay. he got to see double headers. Nice. So I don't know if that's going to be part of what he wants to do or if that's a decision that's higher than him. But, uh, you know, it's just going to be interesting to see how he finds his way around and, and, and see what he likes and what he doesn't like and what he wants to change. So uh, I, I look forward to it. Yeah. And, you know, I've talked about it a lot. It's kind of cool to have people coming in, people that aren't usually in motorcycle people or fl- he's definitely a motorcycle guy. Right. But like, right. Don't have specific flat track experience. Um, cool to see their perspective on the sport. Sometimes you want to hear from somebody outside of your circle. Right. Because, uh, you know, you hear a lot of the same amongst the people in your circle so who knows man like uh we we can't not much we could talk about right now we'll see how it goes in 2021 i have one more comment on that what is exciting to to me is supercross is huge yeah they've got a they've got a show they've got it figured out they've got live tv uh or you know and sometimes it's an hour tape delay tv but what have you they know how to produce content yeah and do it in in a quick manner and so I think that aspect definitely will help American Flat Track. Aside from that, man, I don't even know what else is going on in the world of Flat Track. Well, not a whole lot. We're kind of still waiting. I know the race in Brazil looked like it was a lot of fun. <sighs> Jeffrey Carver went down there. Dude. I, I, now I'm, I'm a little disappointed I didn't go down there. I didn't watch any of the racing, but uh, I saw a lot of the highlights. I was watching social media. It looked like a lot of fun. And then Jeffrey Carver had a school the day or, t- or two after the race. And it looked like a lot of fun. I wish I would have went down there. A hundred percent, dude. And the passion that those Brazilians have for flat track, you can just see it. Like they it's, love it it's awesome to see uh it's cool that you know they're warm and receptive to somebody like carver right they love it um he's a legend regardless uh and yep. they've embraced him he seems to be having a blast down there i've kind of messaged back and forth with uh ed who's uh the guy from uh oh Sabias? yeah ed Sabias with uh with he's where i think he works with uh with flat out um friday and i know he yep. does a bunch of content on his own um, he's just some of the pictures, some of the videos he's been posting, man. I've just been, I've told him I'm super jealous, wish I was down there, but, uh, but to enjoy it. Right. Because I mean, hell they're, they're soaking it up in Brazil still. Um, and we're, yeah, we're yeah. all here kind of trying to figure out what the hell's going on. <laughs> so yeah. And, and Jer- Jeremy Prack went down there, kind of helped run the event. He's Absolutely. the one that kind of runs flat out Friday. So it's kind of cool to see him going down there. It may even be worth was, giving them a call and kind of seeing, maybe having an episode to see, yeah. see what the hell happened yeah. down there. Cause I'm sure there's a lot more than what we saw just on the social media. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I liked how they were all set up in staging, but they're like three or four feet apart. They weren't all just, you know, when I went racing, everybody rushes to the front of the line and everybody just stacks up in there. But they look like they were all lined up. Everybody's respectful of one another. And it just looked like a heck of an event. Yep. Yep. And it was cool to kind of watch uh, watch what happened out in uh, in California, too, with the Royal Enfield team. We, we talked a little bit on uh, what they had going on out there on last week's episode. But uh, it looked like a lot of damn fun they had out there with some hooligans. And it looked like it was like during the day, like they didn't really publicize it. I don't think they wanted a crowd out there. Yeah. They just kind of came out there and put on a good race. Yeah. It looked really fun. I know Johnny Lewis was there. I saw, you know, uh, Jordan Graham was down there. Yeah. Uh, Andy, Andy Debrino. Debrino looked like he was doing good. Wasn't uh, it looked a, like a, a Kurt Patrick a out there event. too? Yeah. AJ Applejack yeah. was down there. Yeah. That was good yeah, stuff, Yeah, it looked man. like a, a lot of fun. I mean, but I think they did that with no crowd on purpose. They didn't tell people that they're going to be doing it. Just the racers and their families came in. I love it. Uh, and put on a race, you know, and maybe that's what we have to do right now who knows man yeah good stuff um it's good to see people staying busy too uh aside from that man i think it's pretty uh pretty quiet on the flat track front for sure i'm sure everybody's still uh getting after it having fun training for 2021 but uh but yeah what what you got i got one more thing for our people that tune in every friday lone star beef jerky sent me a care package because i was without electricity and they sent us a promo code so i've been eating a bunch of beef jerky if you want to order some beef jerky and if you want to support Flat Track, the legend Bubba Schobert this time. We've been talking about Bubba Blackwell. almost <laughs> said that Bubba Schobert, his dad, actually uh, started this Lone Star Beef Jerky. And now Clint, his son, is running it. And they sent us a code. If anybody orders from Lone Star Beef Jerky and uses OTG for Off the Groove 1-5, you get a 15% discount on your entire order. Yeah. And it is some of the best beef jerky I've ever had. So... I've got uh, my dad is a jerky connoisseur. Yeah, we used to eat a lot of beef jerky going to the races, and he when we went to Sturgis, the first place we went is get some Sturgis beef jerky, and we'd buy a ton of it to last us for a while. And my dad said this Lone Star beef jerky is even better than the Sturgis jerky we used to get. So uh, that's from a jerky connoisseur, dude. I've heard some I've heard some stories about that that Sturgis jerky. Oh, it's good stuff. Too. I've never it's had different. that jerky, and dude, it's, I'm it's different. I don't even eat red meat. This is crazy. Like this is what's crazy. <laughs> I don't eat red meat. Like I don't. I don't eat yeah. hamburgers. Call it whatever you want. Call me crazy. I'm not a red meat fan. Anyways, this jerky is so damn good, good. dude. I eat, good. and my girl's like, you don't even eat red meat. And I'm like, no, this is good. And I'm a teriyaki fan. I don't know what flavor you like, yep. but I like the teriyaki. That's my favorite. Yeah, teriyaki is definitely my favorite. People are gonna uh, think it's that good like stuff, man. people are gonna think I'm getting tons of money from them to say this, but like they literally Dude, no, no, no. <laughs> enough, enough All about right. the jerky. My mouth is watering. I know, <laughs> and we we haven't got into the podcast yet, which we already recorded. We did, but uh, yeah. I, I'm ready. I'm ready for this one. We've had this oh. guy on our list probably since this dream started three years ago when I was down at your house. We we made a list and we've slowly been picking away at the list. And we get suggestions, so we slide other people in there. We have events come up that we, we slide other events in front of. And we've been trying to get uh, this gentleman on, who's a legend in our sport, for, for a couple of weeks. But with my loss of power, the end of the season, uh, we finally got him nailed down, got him secured. I came up here to my daughter's house just to knock this one out. Yeah. And I cannot wait for this podcast. Oh, uh, dude. Like... I don't even know how to put it into words. I'm still new, right, to the sport. Uh, So there's a million things about this guy that I still have no clue. But what I do know and what I've heard, uh, I don't think there's there's anybody that can uh, hold hold a candle to everything that this guy's done. Not just you know 
with riders with bikes but like for the sport in general um some of the stuff right. that he's built opportunities he's taken where a lot of people would probably laugh at um that he's made right. into championship bikes uh for riders <laughs> i don't even i guess i did kind of put it into words but I'm, the stoke level is through the roof with this one because it's not just cool for me to hear it um it's cool for an avid flat track fan who's followed it forever obviously to, to hear it because they're gonna probably hear stuff that they didn't even know about right I, I definitely did, and I know a lot of people will too. Like just how he got the job, why he took the job, and why he did several other things. He got into a lot of detail, and I I just can't wait. So let's call him up and let's let's uh, let the fans hear from this guy. It's the legend, Bill Warner. Hello, Bill Warner. Yes, sir. Scotty Dibbler, thank you so much for your patience and your time today. Uh, I know it's been hard getting you lined up. I lost power. I still don't have any power and all that stuff. So I, I just want to start off by saying I appreciate your patience. Oh, no problem. I, I didn't know you had such a dramatic weather event there. So. It, it's so it's so crazy. You know, we're in Oklahoma. You wouldn't think we'd have an ice storm. But what happened is the, the leaves hadn't fallen off the trees yet. And so when the ice storm came through, all the trees came crashing down and it took the electrical poles and lines down with them. So it's been quite a uh, mess. I still don't have power, but uh, hey, we're getting through it. Okay. All right. So I've got to start off by saying you're way high up there on my people that I look up to and that I have the, the utmost respect for. And so I just want to start the interview off by saying that. So um, I, I really, really appreciate the time for you coming on here. No problem. No problem. All right, let's let's dive right into it. So we're going to start way back at the beginning. Where was Bill Warner born? Uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, St. Joseph's Hospital. No Along kidding. with all my brothers and sisters. They keep coming coming out of the hospital. <laughs> it's a baby <laughs> hospital, they call it. St. Joseph's, yeah. I, I, I remember going to the hospital with my dad all the time and picking up my mom, and another kid would keep showing up. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> uh-huh. That's interesting. How many, how many how many brothers and sisters do you have? There were six. There are six of us. Okay. All right. So, what's it like growing up in Milwaukee? Uh, it's a it's a right where I grew up. Milwaukee was a pretty much a racially divided city. The schools, I think, uh, like the high school and grade school I went to, was probably fifty fifty. Uh, racially divided, so it's a pretty diverse city. It's an industrial city. Uh, a lot of manufacturing, you know, Alice Chalmers, Briggs and Stratton. It was uh, the Rust Belt, you know, a lot of heavy manufacturing. Uh, people got out of high school, went to work for a big manufacturing company, worked till they retired, and that was pretty much the norm in uh, Milwaukee. You either worked at a, a big manufacturing plant or a brewery or or something like that, and uh, yeah, kids, you know, got out of high school, got a job, and wow. worked till they got their time in, and that was that. You know, that was kind of Milwaukee back in the '60s. You know. Okay. All right. That's pretty cool. Um, how did how did you get involved, or how did you get into motorcycles? Kind of a circuitous route. You know, when I was a kid, there was a neighbor with a motorcycle. I had uh, an uncle that rode uh, motorcycles all the time, and uh, I think my interest in kind of like racing was spurred by a a high school buddy of mine who had a Honda 305 Scrambler, and uh, he said, hey, let's go to this motorcycle race in Cedarburg. 
there's a guy in Cedarburg who's supposed to be really, really good, and we can go watch a race. And I had done some local scrambling uh, on on motorcycles. I had a uh, a little uh, um, oh god, I can't even remember the name of it now. A Ducati scrambler that I mm. put a. a uh, hopped up and stuff like that. And there's like a little 125. and I'd done some local scrambles and stuff. Anyway, I went to the, the motorcycle race in Cedarburg. And that, of course the guy was Carol Russweber. And got, wow. I said, well, what number is he? What number is he? You know? And he said, I don't know. I, he's supposed to be like the champ guy. He's supposed to be better than everybody else and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, and he does stuff that other guys can't do. And of course we saw him time trial. We went, Oh, that must be the number one guy, you know, and you could see he was <laughs> like head and shoulders better than everybody else. And ironically, in that race, uh, he ran into the back of Bates Molyneux and got his front wheel stuck between the exhaust pipe and the rear wheel high sided and broke his hand. You know, oh, wow. uh, it was kind of, yeah, kind of a like, wow, that was kind of bizarre. Uh, he was catching, uh, Bates got a better start than him. And he stuck his wheel in the outside. And if you know what KRs are, they have that pipe on the outside of the right side. And he got it stuck in there and he high sided off the thing and broke a couple fingers on a hand. It was before the season had started, really. And I don't think he got hurt real bad, but, you know, passion up. He didn't, I don't think he missed any nationals. But that was my first impression in flat track racing. And I went, holy mackerel, that's, that's really kind of bizarre. You know? That. And, and, and so you saw that and so you decided you wanted to try it oh no god no I, I was pretty much convinced I didn't want to try that <laughs> I, 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 uh, I saw it and I was impressed and and to, to make a long story short that that kind of started out a path a very circuitous path of meeting the guy who built his motorcycles uh, a friend of mine from high school and whatnot his dad owned the beer depot and he worked in the beer depot and one of his customers was uh, Ralph Burke, who was Carol Ressweber's tuner. And, you know, we all rode motorcycles, little 125s, and a buddy of mine had a 250 Zundap, and I had my little uh, Ducati Bronco and stuff. And he says, you got to go over and meet this guy, Ralph Burke, in his garage. He does all these work on Ressweber's motorcycles. And I thought, well, okay, yeah, I went over there and chatted with him. And he was a, you know, friendly guy. And we got to sit around and listen to all the race stories and whatnot. And, and uh, he'd invite us into the garage and he'd be tinkering on the bikes and we'd watch. And he kind of, uh, make it all story short, you know, I keep going over there at night and, you know, can I help you with anything? Can I do this? Can I do that? You know, and yeah, you want that or do this or clean the gaskets off of that or do this or do that. And, you know, and I just, I just wanted to be there and absorb it all and, and do whatever I could. And, you know, and that's what kind of got me involved with, Ralph, uh, you know, and then from there, oh, God, my life evolved. And uh, uh, I was delivering propane at the time, and he heated his garage with propane, and I used to deliver propane to his to his garage so he could heat it in the winter. And During that time, uh, I, I was delivering propane to this propane company. A buddy of mine were in our trucks in the morning having breakfast, you know, at a breakfast break, and he's opening up a newspaper, and, uh, and he says, oh, my God, Bill, there's, there's a job here at Harley Davidson in the racing department. Wouldn't you rather do that than, and I know you're a motorcycle nut, wouldn't you rather do that than deliver protein? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, heck yeah. You know, and I looked at it and it says, uh, you know, for a class D racing mechanic they're hiring. So I, I went over to Ralph's out that night and I said, hey, they're hiring a, a racing mechanic at Harley Davidson. He said, yeah, 
Yeah, uh, the guy who uh, used to do that uh, uh, circuit loss, he retired, and it's uh, it's just grinding cylinders, KR cylinders and XLR heads and stuff like that. You'd be polishing rods. It's a terrible job. You hate it. You know, you you wouldn't <laughs> want that. I said, are you kidding? I said, I got a, that would be a job at Harley-Davidson racing, but I'd be working in your department, right? Yeah, you'd be in the department. You'd be doing all the, all the crap work, you know? And I said, well... If I apply for it, will you, you know, put in a good word for me? He says, I'll put in a good word for you. You know, say you're, you know, a young guy who kind of mechanically minded and all that sort of stuff. And we did. And I got an interview with Dick O'Brien and O'Brien asked me my background. And I said, well, I've worked on sprints and different other motorcycles. And, you know, I'm kind of handy and I've done car work. I used to work at a speed shop where I do, you know, transmission rebuilds and cylinder head rebuilds. So I, Ever since I was 16, I've been working in automotive garages and I had kind of a, a background in the automotive part of it and stuff. So I was pretty handy around tools. And make a long story short, I got the job at Harley Davidson, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. <laughs> I mean, I, I worked wow. my way up from from the worst job in the world in the racing department to the best job in the world in the racing department. It took me eight years. I mean, it was like an apprenticeship, <laughs> you know. I mean, uh, but yeah, I, I just kept working away and trying to learn different skills and different things. And I was there at the transition period from KRs to XRs and aluminum XR. So I got involved, mm-hmm. you know, learning all about the, the new engines and all the stuff and got to learn how to run a dyno and cylinder head flow and just, yeah, I was just a guy in the right place at the right time. You know? so, That's amazing. What, what year was it when you, when you accepted the job with Harley Davidson? 1966. Oh my gosh. Some people say, you know, that's the best way to do things is start at the bottom of the totem pole and work your way up because then you know every facet of the job. Would you agree with that? Oh, I would agree with it totally. Yeah. I mean, uh, now companies tend to hire uh, specialists like, you know, okay, you're the suspension guy or you're the tire guy or you're the uh, cylinder head guy, you're the cam guy, you're the piston guy, you're the you know, and, and teams are comprised like that. Now, I, I look at teams now on the circuit, and I see that a lot. And, and in fact, when, when the racing department was commingled with the road racing side of it, uh, the boss at the time, Shivey, would say, well, you know, we got a suspension guy, and we got a, you know, cylinder guy, we got a cam guy, we got a crankshaft guy, we got this, and they had different, like, specialist engineer guys do all different stuff, a clutch guy, and a front fork guy, a rear, rear suspension guy, and and you know he said, you know, you you're in a different area of of flat track where you just do it all, you know, and and we don't. That's not the way we do things anymore, you know. And I said, well, no, that's that's the way we did it back then, and that's the way you had to evolve back then. You had to learn all the you know facets, whether you know it's fitting rods to cylinder head flow to valve jobs to cams to cam timing to pistons to compression ratios to flame travel and combustion chain it was just a different process it's a longer process but mm-hmm. it was a more complete process and you ended up with maybe a singular employee that was more valuable than instead of a bunch of employees that had to learn to communicate and learn that their job wasn't the most important job it was blending into a team that could be cohesive and deliver a, a good product. It was just a different process. You know, so. Yeah. 
a moment ago, Bill, you said it took you eight years to get to that spot that you wanted to be at. Was that, are you talking about to be the, the crew chief, to be the head mechanic? Is yeah. that the spot you're talking about? Yep. Yep. Yeah. To be the crew chief. I, yeah, I started as a D mechanic and there's D, C, B and A. And it took me eight years to go from D to A. And wow. uh, A mechanic made you eligible to be, uh, uh, well, it went from me grinding cylinder heads and rods and stuff to be in uh, Gary Scott's crew chief. Eight years. Yeah. So was Gary Scott the first rider that, that you were the crew chief for? Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. I was actually named after Gary Scott. My mom didn't like the name Gary, so that's why my, my real name's Scott. That's so crazy. I didn't know that he was Ooh. your first rider that you that you helped out. He was, well, I had I had private riders that I had worked with, uh, with my own KRs and XRs and stuff like that. And okay. so I've been racing outside of the, you know, factory team. Uh, kind of, and and that was the knock on Bill Werner in the racing department. Yeah, we are good mechanically to be a crew chief. You have to, you have to learn to work on the field with riders and stuff. And so I had worked with uh, Jim Rice on the private side of it. I worked with Scott Brelsford on the private side of it out of my own garage. I had worked with uh, Keith Ulicki, Sid Carlson, a bunch of guys. Some guys were factory riders, but they didn't have the inside factory ride. They had the kind of like the B factory ride where they had a, they had to work on their own equipment outside of the factory. The factory would give them equipment, but they had to hire mechanics to work on their own. So I helped uh, Jim Rice on his dirt tracker. And I heard uh, Scott, Scott Brelsford on his okay. dirt tracker, uh, Sid Carlson, uh, yeah, even Cal Rayburn, Cal Rayburn stayed at my house for a week with his KRs. And, and his cast iron XRs and stuff, and I did work on his house, uh, out of my house uh, from time to time. So uh, back then, the factory ride meant you got a road racer and you got dirt trackers that you had to hire somebody to work on yourself. And then the factory evolved where you took over kind of the whole dirt track program too. And that happened in the Gary Scott years the Jay Springsteen years and stuff, they were responsible for, tra uh, for, for trailing the bikes or transporting the bikes. And then they integrated in and out of the factory shop and we worked on the things and it, the factory's role in the riders, uh, you know, whole program kind of evolved over the years. Wow. So it's kind of like you had like a satellite operation out of your garage, but at the same time you're working for the factory is the way it sounds. Yep. 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 Okay. And, right. and when some of my guys beat the factory guys, my boss's <laughs> eyes would perk up and see. Well, in fact, at the Atlanta mile, I think it was the Atlanta mile. Scott Ralsford won the, the Atlanta mile on a bike that I rebuilt for him. And uh, he said, is, you know, one of the fastest bikes he ever rode boss which is well, you know, pretty good are you doing anything different what we're doing here and i said a couple things yeah well, like what you know and i said well you know i i changed the piston shape and i did this and that and blah 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 so some of my experimenting outside the factory actually helped inside the factory and okay of course when this, the aluminum xr came out we had oiling problems and different things and i put the first mini sumps on on, on XRs and that became standard equipment. And it just, a lot of the things that I kind of thought would be better or whatever you want to say, I integrated into my personal stuff 
And then I kind of had to prove the, that it was viable. And then ultimately it transitioned into some of the factories methodology. Wow. This, this stuff is just amazing, Bill. I, I know we could spend you know the rest of the afternoon talking about this stuff, but who, who was your first rider that, that won a national that, that counted as your win? Was it somebody as a factory rider or do you think of somebody out of your garage? Scott Belsford won the Atlanta Mile on a bike that I built, and okay. then Jim Rice won the Sedalia Mile on a bike that I went to Sedalia with him. Scott Belsford went there. I was there, but I think I was working with Keith Ulicki at the time. That was okay. just a, what they call a, a shortened national. But actually, Jim Rice uh, spent weeks at my house, and we went to the Sedalia Mile. And I went to Indy with him, and I think he finished second or third in Indy. We drove all night, went to the Sedalia Mile, and then he won the Sedalia Mile. And uh, went in my van. We were all traveling in my van with his motorcycles, him and his wife. Uh, did the all-nighter. I don't know if you recall in those days that they had Indy on Saturday night and Sedalia on Sunday, and you had to get the whole mile national in before noon because they ran cars in the afternoon. So oh, wow. you had to drive from Indy, getting out of there at 10 o'clock at night, drive to Sedalia, Missouri, get there at about six, seven in the morning and the national had to be over by noon and we had oh. to be out of there because the cars came in later. Yeah. It was, it was wow. grueling. It was grueling. Yeah. And back then you didn't have interstates pretty much. You had two lane roads a lot of the way too. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. It was, it was an all nighter. <laughs> yeah. It was an all nighter. And, and, uh, uh, you know, you didn't have uh, 18 wheelers with air conditioning and pop-up TVs. You just, <laughs> most of us didn't even have, well, we didn't have tents. We just threw our shit on the ground and, uh, you know, a couple <laughs> spare tires and you know, a water bottle and, you know, just sweated your butts off. And uh, yeah, that's the way it was. Man. Yeah. Let's talk about, so according to everything I've read up on you, uh, your first Grand National Championship was with Gary Scott. Is that correct? That is correct. And what year was that when that was? That was in 74, right? Oh, you're going to get down to dates. Yeah. I'm 74. The yeah. Marines do that. Yeah. I think it was 74. Yeah. Somewhere around there. So, how, how rewarding was it to win the, the Grand National Championship? Well, uh, the, the year before, we had finished second to Kenny Roberts, and we were in contention to win uh, the championship with Kenny Roberts up until uh, Golden Gate Fields when uh, Gary got caught in some spray going on the back stretch and kind of got blinded by it, went wide and caught the fence and broke his, uh, broke his right leg. And that ended the season for him. And it was a couple of races from the end of the year. We were in contention to win, but Kenny was still probably the odds on favorite because he got all the road racing points that we didn't get. You know, we, we tried, but you know, Kenny had a, a head and shoulders advantage over, uh, over the XR on the road races. But we had an outside shot because we were winning more races than he was on the dirt. Uh, but anyway, Gary Scott finished second in the points. The next year, he did win the championship over uh, uh, Kenny Roberts. And, uh, yeah, it was cool. I mean, you know, going from grinding rods and polishing cylinders to being a crew chief on a national championship was, yeah, it was kind of cool. Yeah, kind of cool. That kind of opened up the door, kind of like the floodgates. So uh, I think a year or two later, you got to, to work with this young kid out of uh, Michigan named Jay Springsteen, and that he was amazing on a motorcycle. Uh, what was it like working with Jay? Well, it was the next year, because the year oh, okay. that 
uh, uh, Gary Scott won the championship, he went into a contract dispute with the, the factory saying that, uh, you know, I want, I want the championship. I want more money. I want this. Uh, and I don't know the details of the, you know, the, the negotiations. Bottom line is they didn't come to, didn't come to terms. So he kept all the motorcycles, which he was supposed to return. He kept all the motorcycles says, well, I'll just keep all these motorcycles by Yamaha road racer and beat the factory at their own game. Wow. And the factory says, okay, well, we'll just have to hire somebody else. So they hired Jay Springsteen and they said, well, Werner, we're giving you this kid Springsteen. And I had seen Springer race and, you know, I, I knew he was amazing. You know, I mean, it was just, you know, he was just a raw, raw talent, you know? And I thought, well, okay, let's, let's, let's roll the dice. Wow. He, he was amazing. And he, he won three championships in a row, uh, had some issues. I, I've heard different stories, but they said stomach issues and stuff like that. They would, he yep. would miss some races. Um, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. I mean, I think he could have, you know, went up there and, and won as many races and maybe as, as many championships as, as Scotty Parker. What do you think about that? Well, <laughs> I agree. I mean, he, he had every bit the talent that, that, that Scott Parker had, Maybe even more in some ways. He, uh, I, in fact, uh, Scott used to quip when they'd ask Scott, "Who's the guy you fear most on the racetrack?" And he'd say, and "This was when I was working with Scott." He'd say, "Jay Springsteen on my motorcycle." He, <laughs> he said, uh, he, "He said Jay can do stuff that I can't do." He said he just does it and doesn't know why he doesn't. He doesn't know why other people can't do what he does. He says yeah. it's just easy, and wow. and Scott. Scott was different that he worked hard at his craft. Jay never really worked at it. He, he just did it. You know, he just didn't practice and didn't say, Oh, I got a plan. I got this. I got that. Where, where Scott was more of a planner and said, well, I gotta, I gotta get in condition for this race. Fiori is coming up. I gotta do laps with this. I gotta do this. I gotta do this. I gotta think out the race on the last lap. I gotta do this. I gotta plan for this guy. He was more of a, a thinker and a planner where Jay just, raced as hard as he can. I mean, I, I remember a race in, in Toledo, Ohio, where Kenny Roberts was watching, he was standing in our pits watching Jay Springsteen time trial. And, and Jay just cut fast time and he pulled him to pits. We put the bike on the stand and Roberts said to him, Hey, Spencer, where's your shutoff point going into three shutoff point? He says, I just run around there wide open and not try to crash. Pull wide open, try not to crash. He said, "I don't, I have any shutoff points." Yeah, no, I just run wide open. And wow, and Robert just shook his head and said, "Yeah, that's that's what it looks like." That's a race. That's amazing. That is that's an amazing story. So, how long did you work with Springer? How many years? Until 1985, uh, from 70. 75 to 85. Yeah. I think, uh, in 85, the, the, the factory team kind of got disbanded, so to speak. In other words, the company was on hard times. We didn't even, we didn't even hardly was going to be in business in 85. I mean, it was tough times for the company and, uh, they gave all the motorcycles, uh, the race team riders, their bikes and, uh, said, yeah, go, go about hiding your, hiring your own mechanics and do the best you can. We'll supply you with parts and pieces the best we can. And, uh, the racing department got kind of disbanded, uh, different mechanics got either transferred to other departments or laid off or, or whatever, but it, it got dispersed down to, to me. I was the last guy left in the department and I was 
pretty much answering phones and shipping parts and doing whatever they told me to do in the racing department, but I wasn't working with anybody or doing anything on the circuit for about two months. And then Scott Parker called me and said, Hey, the guy I'm hired, I'm, I'm not happy. It ain't working out. I want to hire you. And I said, well, I can't, I'm, I'm working here full time. And he said, I'd rather have you work on my bike four hours a day than anybody else. Eight hours a day. I just, I want to hire you. And I, I just, I didn't want to do it. I, I told him, give me a day to think about it. I talked to my wife about it and we just kind of, I was going to night school to learn about repairing, uh, say a robot. So I was going to be a, a robot repair guy because I thought Harley was going out of business to be honest, you know, no and, uh, kidding. Yep. I was learning to be a robotic, uh, repair man, you know, and, uh, he, uh, he called me back the next day, offered me more money and more this and more that, and, Bottom line is, I said, okay, we'll do it, but it ain't it ain't going to be pretty because I'm going to get a bunch of junk in a week, and and we had a race coming up in a week, and I'm going to have to piece this all together and you know do the best we can, and it ain't going to be pretty at first. But he said, eh, let's do it, so we did. And '85 uh, was a it was a tough year. I mean, we we struggled at first, you know, and uh, mostly on dialogue, you know, what he meant and I meant and. And uh, and I remember the first race in uh, one of the first races at Buffalo, New York. He came in and says, "Oh, I'll put a tooth on, and maybe you should change the clamps and do this and that." And I sat down with him and I said, "Man, this isn't working very well." So, "No, we're doing good. We're doing good. We're like third fast or whatever. We're doing okay." And I said, "No, no, that ain't it. That ain't it. You come in and just tell me what to change, and you can have your buddy doing that. You know, I, I I'm mm-hmm. just changing stuff. That that isn't you know." this can work three ways. It can work all your way, all my way, or a combination of the ways you pick, but one way isn't going to work at all. <laughs> he looked at me and he says, what do you want me to do? And I said, just tell me what it's doing. Tell me what it's doing. Don't tell me what to change. Tell me what it's doing. We had a pretty good night. I don't think he won, but we did good. And from there on in, he just said, it's much better this way. I don't have to think <laughs> about things. I don't right. have to think about the changes to be made. I just tell you what it's doing, and I walk away from it. And it's better for me, he said, and I said it's better for me. And from there on in, we started gelling. We won the Indy Mile in 85 and then followed it up with the Sacramento Mile, the first time uh, Harley had won a mile in two years. All Honda up until then. Right. And then everything started getting better and better and better. So, Man, it, it had to have been hard finding that balance, you know, for him and for you. I mean, it's just over time, you guys got to be where you, you could read his mind and stuff like that, or how, how'd that go down? Scotty's got a, a unique dialogue, if, if I can put it that way. You know, I mean, uh, you know, if he came in and said, uh, hey, the friend end is effed, I knew what that meant. <laughs> okay. <know>? And, <laughs> and, if he says, and if he says, yeah, it's lugging. I knew what that meant. That's pretty self, that's pretty descriptive, you know? Right. And if he says, eh, you know, let's take a tooth off or maybe it's revving too much. He wouldn't say take a tooth off. It's revving too much. Maybe, you know, we should, uh, you know, maybe not rev it so much or something, you know, we just create that kind of dialogue, you know, but everybody that watched us work when he'd come in and say, Hey, that the friend in is asking, I knew what that meant. You know, and people say, well, right. what does that mean? And I said, well, I know what it means, you know. 
And or if he'd say, yeah, the F, yeah, the front end's F, can you fix it? And I'd say, well, I'm going to make it either better or worse. You tell me. And 90% right. of the time, I'd make it better. You know, and, and, and then, of course, you'd learn if you made it worse. So you create sure. a dialogue over time, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of people would just say, uh, it doesn't matter what you do. You're, he's just going to ride it different. And, and a lot of times that was the truth. He would just ride it different or he'd do something different. So even with Jay, I mean, you, you create, you spend so much time with these guys because back then you traveled in the transporter, you lived with them, you ate at the restaurant with them, you slept in hotels with them. You just, you spent so much time with them. We'd always equated as just a marriage. You literally mm-hmm. you spent more time with, or as much time with them as they did with their girlfriends or spouses. You, you got to know them, you know, on a very personal level. So that made communicating a lot easier. I think, I think what's so, what's so special to, to you, Bill, is you've had success with a lot of different riders on different bikes and different personalities, which makes it so impressive what you've done and, and all the wins you have. Do you, do you know how many wins you, you have, how many Grand National wins you have total? Well, my wife's got a chart over there starting at Scott Brownsford and even has uh, Jim Rice on it. And that number is 153. Now, some of those uh, are are when the Nationals are with Mike Kidd and, uh, you know, they had uh, uh, 750 races with, you know, Rich King and that. Now, is that a National or is it a National or not? I, I didn't right. count any of the stuff like that. There's 153 of those races with, you know, twins and stuff like that. So. That's incredible, incredible stuff. Um, you you went on you know to do a lot of things, but you retired from you know being a crew chief in in two thousand and four. Why why did you walk away? Uh, it was really easy. Uh, I mean, up until then, it was the best job I ever had. Got a new manager, uh, and before that, managers here's the keys to the kingdom. Tell me what you want. Here's your budget. If you need more, let me know. Just walked away from it, and I pretty much got to do whatever I wanted, which was great. He was a great mm-hmm. boss, and everything was great. So marketing changed. There was some new people getting shifted around. I got a new manager that said, uh, okay, Bill, I'm, I'm going to do the marketing for this now. You're still, you know, you call the technical shots. You do all the stuff, and, you know, it'll be, it'll be great. Nothing's going to change. So we went down to Daytona and we had the Buell blast that Rich King was riding. And, uh, just before going out to a heat race, uh, the ignition failed on it and he didn't, didn't make the start of the heat race. We changed the ignition on it. He got into the semi, didn't transfer to the main event, missed it by a spot or something like that. So the Monday morning meetings, of course, after the race, we the team all got together though, the race and the manager and said, Okay, Bill, what happened? You know, we had all the Harley Brass up there. We wanted to see the the Buell Blast, you know, win Daytona. I said, well, you know, okay. Well, it didn't win Daytona, and here's why. We had an ignition failure, and, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, we're going to date code things. We had these ignition things in there for years, never had a problem. We're going to date code quick disconnects so we could change them in less than 30 seconds. Going to do this, going to do this, and that's what we're going to do until we can explore other ignition options. And she said, well, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. Come up with another plan, and then I'll let you know which way we're going to go on that. And I said, what? 
She says, yeah, come up with a plan A and a plan B. We'll decide which way we're going to go on that. And then, then uh, I'll let you know which, what we're going to do. And I, my ears just perked up like crazy. I said, Hey, I'll be I, I, just a second. I'll be right back. Where are you going? I said, I'll be right back. I walked, yeah. walked out of the department, walked over into another building where the human resources was and said, Hey, how much notice you got to give to retire? And I said, two weeks. Who, who's retiring? I said, me. Said, wow. You can't, you can't retire. I said, yeah, I can. I got a 30 and out program. I've been here 38 years. So I came back about 10 minutes later and says, where have you been? You've gone for 10 minutes. And I says, I'm not going What were you doing up there? I said, I'm retiring. She says, when? And I said, today. Wow. You can't do that. I said, yeah, I can. Yeah, I can. Yep. I'm the senior guy in the department. I get six weeks vacation. They're starting tomorrow. I'm out of here. Uh, 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 oh. My vice president of human resources called me in. The, the CEO called me in. You can't do this, Bill. You can't. I said, yeah, pretty much I can. You know, this is what you owe me. This is you send me the checks. This is it's that that's yeah. It's I'm a union guy. I can do this. I can do this. Well, they talked me in the stand for a month and uh, getting the other guys up to speed on the bikes and and whatnot. And they're going to have a big celebration retiring in Springfield. And they had a big party the week before that where they gave me a bike out of the museum and it like a whole big plan and I guarantee it wasn't a plan again. You know, it was me just being me. I says I'm not gonna do this if I'm gonna put people's lives at risk. You, you she before that she wanted me to change the engine oils to Harley oil and I said we've been using another brand. Well we gotta put Harley oil in it's good oil just put it in there. And I said, well when are we going to start testing it? And I said she said, well, we need testing. It's good oil. We use it in regular all the highways. I said, well, it's not an XR. And I says, I, I want to test it, do it, you know, hours and hours of testing before we do that. She says, well, we ain't got time. Just put it in. I says, okay, that's fine. You're the boss. We'll do that. But if that thing locks up and hurls Rich King up to the grandstand and he kills himself and five other people and somebody sticks a microphone in my mouth saying what happened, I'm going to tell them what happened. Well, you can't do that. And I said, well, <laughs> you better grab the microphone out of my mouth because I'm going to tell them exactly what happened. Wow. Well, uh, you know, she didn't like hearing that. She says, well, then put that oil in the Harley cans and we'll do that. I said, okay, I'll do that. So <laughs> I, I could see that this wasn't going to be a marriage made in heaven at all. Okay. And I just was, I, I just, I didn't want to hurt anybody. I didn't, you know, and everybody kind of warned me about her. And I says, I just... It was a rash, a rash decision to say the least. I mean, it was just meeting me and saying, I ain't, I ain't going to do it this way. I, I won't do it this way. So I didn't. Good for you. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And, and it, in, in retrospect, you know, it was a great decision. I mean, I mean, it, I got out at a great time because the benefits for union guys were way better than they are now. I mean, the, the pay structure and, you know, the pension is great. And we get my wife and I get insurance for life at no cost. And, you know, some of the things that aren't common now were fairly common back then. And, and in retrospect, financially, it was the best decision I ever made. You know? Awesome. Awesome. I did not know the, the whole story and I appreciate you being candid with us and telling us that um, we worked together before uh, in a com- with a company called Live Eye Sports. I was the play by play announcer. You were the color commentator, which was kind of like what uh, fans choice was way before its time. Uh, I, I recall you being an excellent an analyst working with Dave Despain. Did you enjoy doing that? The TV stuff? Is that something that you got into? 
Oh yeah, he was a kick. Him and Ted Burks. Oh, they're a kick, man. They, they were the best. I mean, we do we do voiceovers in hotel rooms, or, <laughs> or I fly down to Atlanta during the middle of the week, and we do it in the studios. Uh, yeah, it was it was like I say, it was a dream job. I mean, it was it was a lot of hours because I'd work on the bikes till all hours of the night and fly to Atlanta and go back here or do it in the hotel rooms. And, <laughs> and Dave, of course, is, you know, the gold standard of announcers. I mean, I, absolutely. You know, I, you know, he, he was so, so good. And I, I remember doing a voiceover uh, once and, you know, it, it sticks in my mind, like uh, it just yesterday and, and there was a crash scene coming up and, you know, before the scene, we're watching the voiceover. He said, well, Bill, what do you think happened there? And I said, well, you know, I'm not quite sure, you know, and you know, maybe this guy, maybe this, he says, nah, here, Bill, just say what you think is going to happen. This is what TV is all about. Tell them you're going to tell them it, tell them it, then tell them you told them it. You're the expert. <laughs> nobody's going to dispute you. The three things, tell them you're going to tell them it, tell them it, then tell them you told them it. And he says, it works out. And I thought, Man, this guy's really got his stuff together. I mean, he is. <laughs> I mean, and he would be he had such a command of the the sound booth and and know what's going on, and he'd throw to you at the right time and warn you what it's. I mean, he he made me look good in the sound booth because you know he just. It was cool. It was cool. It was fun. I mean, it was something I I never thought I'd ever do for a living, you know. And it, it wasn't living. I mean, it was literally a part time job. Don't get me wrong. You don't. Right. You probably know you don't get wealthy doing this. Exactly. (laughs) It's, it's, it's it's more of an ego trip. You know, it's, it's cool. It's fun. I I enjoyed it though. I enjoyed working with you, you know, sitting beside you when we, when we did it and I enjoyed listening to you and, and Dave, you know, he's a true pro and, and he can, he can make everything just so much smoother and so much easier to work with Uh, a couple of stats before we get into a few more questions. 1996, the AMA award of mechanical excellence. I know that's just one of the few awards you got uh, inducted to the, uh, the hall of fame in 1999. So what's it like being recognized by your peers and, and getting to, you know, getting these honors from, from the industry? Uh, you know, it's, it's cool. Obviously don't get me wrong. You know, I, I think the coolest part is, uh, you know, uh, I, I mean, I think my daughter was in, in college in Madison and I, I the shows were coming on late at night and they were in some bar at night with all her sorority sisters. And I was on BD TV doing that. And she said, Oh, that's my dad. You know? So that time you'd go up and visit them in college, you know, the, all her friends would say, Oh my God, you're a TV guy. You God, you're special. That probably more to me than, than <laughs> you know, making my daughter feel proud about me than, 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 you know, and the accolades from, you know, the industry. I mean, that's nice. Don't get me wrong. But right. having your kids think that you're special, that's really yeah. special. That, that's priceless. That That is just priceless. I love it. You know, uh, my daughter tells me that, that she sees me here or there, and she just gets a big smile on her face, and I just I love that. Um, I'm yeah, actually yeah. – yeah, I'm recording from her house right now, and and she loves oh. it that I'm here doing this. And and anyways, it's pretty cool. Uh, I'm glad to hear that from you as well. Uh, so we we mentioned a moment ago you retired from Harley in 2004, but you came back in 2008 with this Pioneer, the first ever. You, you buy a Kawasaki off of eBay, and come come to race with the big boys. What was the reason behind that? Well, I, I went down to in 2007. I went down to Daytona 
just to help Springer at the road race. I knew he was doing this endurance races on the Jim France team where uh, he had some Kawasaki 650s. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go down there, watch a short track, and then just maybe hand tires or wrenches to the crew chief or whatever. Just hang out with Springer because that's always fun, you know. So I get down there, and uh, uh, Gary Nelson, who's kind of like Jim's right-hand man, uh, NASCAR experience and, you know, a legendary mechanic on his own right. Uh, you know, he was kind of observing the team and whatnot. And they were having problems with some of the bikes and the, the mechanic and dialogue with some of the other mechanics. And uh, to make a long story short, uh, Sunday before the race or Saturday before the race, the, the, the crew chief just walked out, threw down his wrenches and all the mechanics says, hell it, I'm getting something to eat. I'm just, I'm tired of all this. I'm just, I walked off. He walked off. And Gary Nelson says to me, he says, well, Bill, he says, looks like you're going to be crew chief on the number nine bike. And I says, what are you talking about? And he says, he wants you to be crew chief on the number nine bike. I just walked out. So we want to hire you to be crew chief on this. I said, well, you have to hire me. I'll help him. But I don't, I don't know anything about these things. You know, I, I've never, I, you know, <laughs> you know, I could polish the gas tank for you, but he says, you'll figure it out. I know enough about you. You'll figure it out. Bottom line is, you know, we, I was crew chief for Springer for that, for that race. I don't know if we won it or got second, not sure. I think we got second or third, not even positive. It was a, uh, I think it was a four hour endurance race at, at, uh, at Daytona in the spring. Well, later that week, they called, uh, Francis office called and said, well, we want to hire you to do the rest of the season on the endurance series. And I said, well, I, first of all, I don't want to do it. And second of all, you know, I don't know anything about these things, you know, and, uh, well, you know, you'll figure it out and you know, how much do you want? And I said, I, I don't want anything. I'll just, I'll do it for nothing. Whatever you're going to pay me, just give it to Springer. I said, I don't, I don't need the money. I'm good. You know, I'll just do it to, to, to do it. You know, bottom line is we won the, won the championship that year. And, and, uh, the more I got to working on these Kawasaki 650s, I thought the cool, they're really cool little engines and stuff. About the same time, Ken Salant from the AMA calls me and says, hey, we got some new class coming in, a, like a, a reduced performance twins class that we're going to have next year. And we'd like you to build a bike that's not a Harley for that class. And, uh, and I says, wow. Well, yeah, he says, you know, it's, racing's cool, but we want this kind of like a junior class or amateur class, whatever you want to call it, a transition from the singles to the, to the deep, deep boy class. And could mm-hmm. you build a bike for that class? That's not a Harley. So we could get some diversity in the class. So I chose the, the 650 Kawasaki and make a long story short, you know, it had a couple different guys, Triumph, Jesse Janish and, and, and uh, Brock Schwarzenbacher. In fact, Schwarzenbacher, won the Indy mile on the thing, uh, beating, uh, Chad coast. That was mm-hmm. on the Aprilia, I think. And yep. then followed it up with a win on, uh, at the Topeka half mile. Well, that just started the whole ball rolling and they're good riders and everything. But I knew that if you're going to get into the really deep end of the pool, you needed a better rider. And, uh, I was helping Brian Smith at the time with his, you know, XR seven fifties and stuff like that. And I thought, well, he'd be a good guy to hire. So I went to, you know, some people that had money and said, well, if we had some money, maybe we could compete in the big boy class. 
and uh, the money came in, and I had enough money to pay Brian and Jay to help me. And uh, to make a long story short, in 2010, uh, Brian Smith won the Indy Mile and followed it up with a, a win at the uh, uh, Springfield Mile. And that's what kind of got the whole Kawasaki thing running. That had to have been very fulfilling for that to happen. I mean, just, you know, like you said, with, with Schwarzenbacher winning first and then Brian Smith winning in the big boy class, that had to be exciting, you know, beating the Harley team, beating everybody, the best of the best. Well, it, 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 the rewarding part is everybody said I was nuts. A parallel twin can never win in, in racing that Kawasaki only makes 65 horsepower. Uh, everybody knows parallel twins. They don't have the right flywheel effect. They don't have the, uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on about how stupid I was and uh, uh, what a dumb, dumb exercise this was going to be. And I said, well, I didn't get that memo. You know, I, 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 I just, I, I don't think motorcycle racing is only has to be V twins. I don't think, yeah, I think a parallel twin could win, and uh, it's got a lot of advantages. It, you know, it's light, it's little, it's compact. You can put it where you want to put it in the frame. It's it's you know, it's mm-hmm. it's water cooled, it's fuel injected. It's you know, I could list a, a bunch of positives that said, yeah, I think you know, it it can be the next R seven fifty. So, uh, wow. yeah, make a long story short, awesome. it's good. That's so cool. So one of our 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 sponsors, our patrons, we call them, uh, asked a question and they like to have it answered by you. And I know there's the Yamahas out there in the production twins class and, and they've tried the, the big boy class as well a little bit, but they want to know, will there be another street based engine become as or more successful than the Ninja 650 was? If, if I had to go big boy racing right now, I'd pick the KTM because of the displacement rules that they use, you know, back then yep. everything was supposed to be seven fifties and you had a struggle to make a six fifty a seven fifty. Now the displacement is a moving target. I think it, I think it moves week to week, depending on who influences who or who's down in perception and reality. And I'm not a big fan of that whole scenario, but that's reality right now. So if I had to pick a bike to go deep pool racing, it would be the KTM because it starts out as an 800 CC and it has okay. a lot of, a lot of good things going for it. You know, yeah, it's a parallel twin, but the four stroke valve area, a couple other things. Uh, I'd probably pick the KTM to be the new potential upstart in the production based class. Okay. Uh, I think, well, realistically the Harley that they have now, the XG should be one of the dominant boys in that class and for whatever reason it's not you know you can you can list a whole bunch of woulda coulda shouldas uh, and it it's not the riders they've had great riders they have great riders so it's all the things but the riders that keeps it from winning and, and what those things are i don't know I was getting ready to ask if you wanted to open that door because I, I don't know either. And I'm sure, you know, the, the folks at Vance and Hines are, are scratching their head a little bit. I know, you know, they've got Ricky Howerton down there helping out. So what I mean, as an observer, what do you think they should change? Or do you have any ideas or do you have any secrets to give them? Or Well, initially, initially, when I saw the first ones, I didn't think they had very good frame geometry uh, and they maybe weren't. Uh, had the right shape of the power curve. Uh, 
Okay. I don't know enough about them now because I don't go there all the time now. I know they have a displacement advantage. Uh, just knowing what I know about engines, that, you know, they have a lot of latitude. They can go to double overhead cams, which reduces a lot of the lead time for creating power curves. They've got good software to monitor the fuel injection. I think they even have a, a Venturi uh, uh, size enhancement compared to the Indians. On paper, they should wax the Indians. On paper, they should make more power. Uh, they should have all the handling capabilities that Indian have. I think they've even duplicated the Indian chassis characteristics. But dirt track racing is more than just power. If I had to make a guess, I think it's the way the power talks to the chassis and, and, and that link is their problem. But it's an educated guess at best because I don't go to the races every week. I don't talk to the racers every week. I don't watch, you know, get the look at their software. You know, I mean, I don't. I don't know, uh, but certainly the sanctioning body has given them everything they've asked for power-wise, maybe to the detriment, because as you well know, none of the big displacement bikes like the Suzuki's or the other things, even though they had huge power advantages, mm-hmm. uh, even on the miles, it didn't bear the fruit that it should have borne, but you could have wrote that off to maybe not having top-level riders. So now they have top-level riders, and they have a power advantage. Could be the shape of the power. Could be the software in the ECU. Could be the chassis. Could be something as simple as suspension. And I know they go from suspension guy to suspension guy. It's like uh, whack-a-mole. If that guy's the hot (laughs) suspension guy of the week, they hire him, and you throw a whole bunch of money at him. And the next guy wins a race, they hire him. There's no continuity to it. Uh, that I can see. And I think at best they're just guessing. And uh, I don't think they have the one guy in charge that they have faith in that knows enough about all of the idiosyncrasies of flat track racing. They have a bunch of pseudo specialists, but, uh, and I know Ricky's a tremendous fabricator and whatnot. I don't think he's an engine guy. And I think Vance and Hines is an engine guy. He's not a chassis guy. And getting those two guys to talk to each other sometimes is problematic. Instead of having the one guy that they have the faith in saying, you're the guy, make all the calls. If I had a guess, that would be my guess. I, I love, I love it. I, I think that's great. You know, I was, I was uh, getting goosebumps while you're just sitting there talking to me about it. Cause I, you know, we tried that TDM, you know, 850 for a little while, and we had plenty of horsepower on the straightaways, yeah. but getting it getting it yeah. to hook up, and then you got to turn the thing at the end of the straightaways. So there's yep. so many yep. things that, that are involved in there, so it's hard to point your finger at one certain thing, but I, I like where you're coming from. Um, is it true that, that you designed the Indian FTR 750, or is that just a rumor? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I, I had nothing to do with that. No, that thing is... Is 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 well designed, well thought out. They got great people working on it. The guys in SDS, they really know their stuff. Zanotti is a whiz. Uh, I enjoyed the years I worked with him on the uh, Kawasaki project. He is he he is a work literally a workaholic, and I I, uh, I I congratulate him on all the success that they've had, and it's well deserved. Awesome. I just had to throw that one out there. So when was the last uh, AFT national you went to? Uh, Phoenix, the Phoenix, uh, okay. super TT. Yeah. yeah. I visited my sister down in Phoenix at the same time and, and I uh, got to see that 
that's the last one I've seen in person. Okay. So I, I thought I thought that was the last time I saw you. I think we rode the elevator together or something, or we we yeah. ended up at, at the airport together. I saw you and your wife. Yep. So I, I didn't know if that was the last one or not. What have you been up to, you know, lately? Well, uh, I'm pretty much homebound with all the COVID going on. I, I do some consulting over the phone with different teams and help them out and try to give them, you know, my perspective on things. Uh, I manage a, a, a portfolio uh, of investments right now, and that consumes a little bit of time. So I've turned into uh, a mechanic until a, a, a financial advisor to a consultant to uh, uh just a stay-at-home kind of guy. I guess my life has changed dramatically in the last couple of years. Uh, do you miss being at the track at all? I miss some of the people. Uh, some of them I don't miss at all. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, a lot of them I miss, I miss a bunch. Uh, you know, you make a bunch of friends. Kenny Tolbert's a great friend. I miss him. Uh, Dave Zanotti. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, and and then there's some 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 people you don't miss at all. <laughs> that should be enough. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, I like it. So we're we're near the end of the episode, and it's time for Graham's question. And Graham's been around Flat Track probably about as long as you. So she she kind of wrote me a few different things. So this might take a moment. But Graham says uh-huh. she could have an entire episode with herself just because she has so many questions she wants to ask you. But we'll ask you two. Now, uh, she said, did you know what you wanted to do at an early age, or did your passion evolve with the experience? No, I had no clue. I mean, I was just trying to stay alive. Uh, a, a series of random events shaped my life. The Kawasaki thing, uh, going down there to help a guy change tires, to end up being a crew chief on a road race team, to being uh, a part of a, a new brand of motorcycles, being introduced into dirt track racing. Life is just a series of random events that had no plan on my part. Okay. All right. I love that answer. And the second part of her uh, question, it says, you've taken some pretty daunting projects that involved a ton of work. Where does your drive to succeed come from? That's, uh, you know, (laughs) I talked to a doctor about that once, you know. uh, (laughs) there's, There's been mental health issues in my family. Uh, my, my dad had mental health issues. Uh, I've lost some siblings to suicide. And, and the people that know me know me well that you might say I have a manic type of personality. And I even talk to a doctor about it sometimes when you're taking your physicals. And he said, uh, describe yourself to me. I said, well, if I get fixed on something, I can work around the clock without sleeping or eating. I can I can do stuff that normal people don't do if I really pour myself into it. And then, of course, the flip side of the question is, well, do you ever get depressed? And I said, hell no. I always, I always blame other people for my problems. So I said, I don't do that. You know. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> and, and I was joking, of course. I was joking, right. of course. I says, he says, you've got the best of both worlds. You've got the manic side without the depressive side. But, you know, I think about it, you know, because of my family history and whatnot, you know, and – uh, and I'm not trying to make light of suicide or anything. It's it's a terrible thing, and depression is a terrible thing. And I'm I'm very sensitive to the people that have uh, suffered that in their life for their families in their life because I have. And uh, but as far as me personally, uh, there's a facet of myself that that I know saying not normal is is a nice way of saying it. And when I get fixed on something, I get fixed on something. 
and nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. And that's not healthy or unhealthy. It's just what it is. And I recognize that's about myself. And maybe racing was just a conduit to to use that part of my personality in a beneficial way. I I, I had no idea. I, I really appreciate you being candid on all that. Um, I, I forgot to mention this a moment ago, but and I don't want you to give away any secrets because I've seen uh, bits and pieces on this XR750 film that our friend Evan Sin is doing. I know he went and spent some time with you. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything you can tease us about the film? Because I, I know it's going to be amazing. It's cool. I mean, uh, I got to see a little snippet of it. Uh, some of my most favorite people are in it. And uh, the the quotes and the, uh, the photography, uh, the announcer's great, too. He's got a great voice, and he tells a great story. Uh, I think it's going to be well-received, and uh, I think everybody's going to enjoy it without giving out any secrets. All right. I love that. I've seen, I've probably seen the few bits and pieces that you've seen, maybe not as many, but I cannot wait for that to come out. So we wrap up the episode with some rapid fire questions. So tell me the first thing that comes to mind when I ask you the question, are you ready, Mr. Bill Warner? Yes, sir. What's the favorite bike you've ever ridden? Uh, XR750. All right. What is your favorite racetrack? Delmar. Okay. Why, why? I'm going to ask you, I'm gonna, on a side note, why is that? Because we had a pretty good chance of winning it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, I knew going in there that everybody else was going to race for a second, or at least I thought that, because we had uh, some pretty good guys on the bikes, you know. Okay, I got gotcha. you. What's your favorite win as a crew chief? Uh, there was two that really stand out in my mind. The first Springer win at uh, Ascot when he clinched the championship to win his very first championship, and all he had mm-hmm. to do was finish fourth to beat Gary Scott out of the championship, and he led for most of the race. Jorgensen passed him a couple laps to go. We said, just stay there for a second. You got the championship won. He passed him back, won the race, and won the championship. That, yep. that was just, we didn't know whether to kiss him or kill him or, or what. And earlier in the day, he got flipped off the bike and had a broken hand. You know? oh. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, they were going to take him to the hospital. Uh, it did a broken head, dislocated finger. So I pulled the finger back in joint and <laughs> snapped it in joint. And they were going to, I said, you can't leave us now. EMTs were going nuts. I snapped it back in the joint and he said, yeah, I'm okay. And it, oh. it was, it was a drama filled evening. The second yeah. one that really stands out in my mind is the one uh, at the Indy Mile, when the night before at Indy, Scott was in contention to win. We blew up. I had a bunch of broken pieces in my hands, and we pieced together a motorcycle that we hoped would just run the 25 laps the next day. And not only did it run, but he won the Indy Mile, setting a new mile record, averaging 102 miles an hour, turning 34-second mm. laps on the Indy Mile. And, and that one really sticks out. Those two were really, really something. Those are great. I love it. Uh, in your opinion, who's the greatest flat tracker of all time? Boy, that's that's a no-win guy. Yeah, you, you're <laughs> in a tough spot say, right there. <laughs> yeah, some people say Carol Westheimer, and I didn't see enough of them uh, to, see, to see that. I think Jay is the greatest natural talent. Uh, Scott is the most focused. Kenny Roberts is probably one of the better all-arounds uh, uh, racers. 
and uh, I think uh, Ricky Graham is is right in that mix too. So I, I, I couldn't put a finger on one of them. Uh, each one has their own unique personality and skill. Uh, Ricky had certainly skills, but had certain demons. Uh, Jay mm-hmm. had just natural ability. Scott was driven, uh, just a driven person. Uh, Bubba Schobert had enormous talent also. Uh, in my era, you know, those guys come to mind as, you know, some of the top. Yeah, that, that's a great answer. It's, I think that's the best no answer we've ever gotten, so I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> who's who's your favorite person to go bench racing with? Ooh, bench racing with. I, I enjoy talking to Brian Bigelow a lot. Really? You know, okay. He, 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 he's got enough of a history. He knows what he knows about himself, his past. He appreciates the history of the sport. Uh, he has a different understanding of it now than he did when he was racing. And that tempers him well for what he does now. Uh, he and I get on the phone sometimes, you know, he'll call me up and say, Hey Bill, what do you think about this, that, or another thing more on the technical side. And we'll end up bench racing for hour, hour and a half about stuff. I mean, and uh, another guy is Zanotti. He and I talk for hours at times. Those two mm-hmm. guys would be the two best guys I like bench racing with. I love it. And uh, both of them had a great year. I know uh, Zanotti with Briar winning the championship and then, you know, Bigelow getting that win with Jeffrey Carver. Uh, I think we all thought it was going to happen a lot sooner, but I think it was rewarding when they finally got that win. Um, what's the most important thing you need to do to become a great tuner? Who give up everything else in life. Wow. Uh, okay. <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, I mean, uh, if, if, if family's important, maybe not the job for you. If uh, regimented hours are the things for you, maybe not to just, you know, it's just, it's, you have to, you have to be willing to put somebody else's interest before yours. And mm-hmm. your job is to make them look good no matter what. And I mean, personal relationships suffer. Certainly other people uh, will, uh, you know, you'll be loved by some people and hated by it even more if you're <laughs> successful. Right. Uh, it's, 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 it's a selfless job. Ask Kenny Tolbert, you know, I mean, a lot of mm-hmm. people love him, but a lot of people dislike him maybe because he's successful, uh, because they all want to have part of that knowledge. So they want to ask him, what did you do about this? What did you do about that? And it's in his best interest to not share that. Right. They may understand that, but they don't like it. You know, they they, they would like to think, oh, you get all the special stuff or you get this or you get that, you know, and and rather than measure their own shortcomings, it would be easier to just blame somebody else. I love it. I love that answer, too. So here's a a tough one for me to, to pick, but maybe easy for you. Who's the next first time Super Twins champion? The next first time Super Twin champion. Oh, you know, huh, that's a good question. Uh, I I haven't seen enough of the guy. You know, the, the obvious pick would be that Dallas Daniels guy. You know, because he's had such a successful year, but he's on a great team too. At least the singles part of it's great. Uh, there's a couple other guys that are up and comers, but don't have maybe as good a program. So, yeah, you know, off the top of my head, he's got a road race background. He's good on TT short track. You know, I would 
you know, I guess Dallas Daniels would be the guy that comes to mind. Okay. I like it. And our last question, we do borrow this one from Dave Despain. What are you most proud of? The most proud I am of everything I've accomplished in life is having two well-adjusted, successful human beings as daughters. Oh, awesome. I, I love that answer, Bill. Um, and our last question, we always, you know, give it up. Usually we have writers on here, but we have mechanics too and other people and promoters and stuff like that. But would you like to say thanks to anybody? Oh God, everybody. Uh, <laughs> you know, like I say, with life being a series of random events, you know, Harley Davidson motor company for taking a chance at hiring me, uh, all the riders I've ever worked with that put their faith in me, all the uh, uh, manufacturers. You know, I when I walked into Kawasaki and I wanted some equipment, and I talked to Bruce Sternstrom, and he said, you know, everybody here said uh, uh, there's no way that that 650 could be uh, competitive, but we're going to give you some help, some parts and pieces and stuff, mostly because of you. And he had faith in me. Uh, Jim France for having faith in me. Uh, all the riders, the AMA, uh, everybody who's ever given me a chance in life to, to work, to at least try to do the best I can, just given me a chance. Uh, what I'd really like to do is thank a couple of guys that helped me for years, getting to all the races and helping me at the racetrack, uh, Pete Pulaski and John Parker. You know, without them, uh, travel would have been impossible. Getting the bikes there and and. and just being my companion and my, my go-to guy to handing me a tool, a wrench, whatever I needed, mostly getting me to the races in, in one piece because you work so many hours. Both Pete Pulaski and uh, John Parker, you know, contributed a lot to all the, you know, success I had over the years. And, 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 and I could go on for hours, you know, because, you know, I, I joke about it sometimes when I've been asked to speak, you know, if in my high school annual people had to write a quote about me, they would have said most likely to be incarcerated because I had nothing going. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That is so awesome. I mean, it just, I mean, I was a dead end kid that, you know, uh, you know, single family mom, six kids, welfare, uh, you know, just staying alive was my goal in life. I mean, it really was. Wow. Wow. Bill, uh, you're a legend, and I just want to say, again, thank you so much for the time. I apologize it's taking forever to get this done. Uh, it is well worth the wait, and the flat track community is going to love it. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I got a feeling that uh, you're going to say that this is your new favorite episode, Scotty. Dude, it is. You know, I, I, I'm not ashamed to say this, but my favorite before this was been, it's been Jordan Graham. Yeah. Jordan was awesome. I love getting, you know, a different perspective on things. Yeah, he's a super hooligan rider. I don't care. He still talks about flat track, just his lifestyle and all that fun stuff. But this one, definitely my new favorite. And he was so candid. He he didn't shy away from anything we asked him. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't dig in and, and go a little bit deeper like we maybe could have on a few things. But he answered everything we asked and then some. Oh, and yeah. I learned a whole lot more about the man himself bill warner yeah man it's uh 
like like we always say you know with, with with guests like this and you know with any flat track rider i think we could sit down and have an hour long two hour long conversation just on one story sometimes this guy has got hundreds and hundreds of stories across decades of flat track experience right and on different levels right with different riders different bikes different manufacturers like holy hell man Right. What what I kind of forgot, and I, I, you know, I was really young when he was just getting going. I forgot that he was doing a lot of stuff out of his garage at yeah. the same time he was working for the factory team. And a lot of people frowned upon that. I'm yeah. sure Harley probably didn't like that so much either when the guys on the bikes out of the garage, the satellite team, were beating the factory riders. No way in so, hell you'd see that in today. Yeah, <laughs> that would not fly right no. now. So he's he's done a lot, you know, and... He says 153 Grand National Victories. His wife has a record of it. Burt Sumner says 149. We know it's way up there. Dude, it's... It, I mean, 149, yeah. 153, it's like, whatever. I mean, it's it's. <laughs> you get past 100, right? Like, you, why yeah. do you even keep counting? Like, hey, exactly. we've got over 100. Like, you know, you got, you, got, you got Kenny Tolbert. He's catching them a little bit slower this year than the last couple of years. But, uh, man, it's, it's incredible. And I just... It's my new favorite podcast, my new favorite episode, uh, and I really thank Bill for his time. Dude, it's can't thank him enough. Uh, not just for the time, but the stories, the insight. Um, I don't see him involved as much. I know that there were rumors like he's been helping uh, some of the efforts on the Indian with Carver. I don't know. We didn't even get into that that much, but he did speak on Bigelow, right? Yeah, he said they spend some time on the phone yeah. and picking Bill's brain. It had, I mean, it seems like it's working. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to give all the credit to Bill because Carver's one hell of a writer. Bigelow knows what he's doing, but, yeah. you know, just to bounce ideas off somebody definitely helps. 100%. So it's pretty cool. Um, before we before we wrap things up, we do have uh, the first ever adaptive race coming up out in California on November 20th and 21st. We're going to get some more information on that. It's racing Jason Griffin. I know some other people out there. Sherman Lee is a big part of this. And all the racers have disabilities, and they're all going to be racing at one time. So we'll try to get some more information on that. But I, I wanted to kind of just throw that out there so people can start looking forward to that out in California. It's uh, it's definitely uh, something that we're going to be talking about next week. We got an insane guest to, to go along with Jason Griffin. Um, so another legend uh, that, that you guys are going to be blown mm. away by. Uh, and all right. That'll just be a tease for now. The patrons know what's All right. up. Um, but, All right. uh, but it'll be a surprise for everybody else. And, <laughs> dude, if you thought this was a good one, next week will be just as good. Um, so Good. Um, yeah, man. Other than that, dude, ain't much going on on this end. Well, I just got a bunch of trees to uh, clean up, uh, and hopefully I get my power soon. I just I, I, I stopped the front yard so far. I've got three pretty big piles in the front. Uh, hopefully it. they pick those up pretty soon. But they said it could be a month or two before that gets cleaned up. Uh, still no power at the house. Hopefully I get power. But, uh, you know, thanks to Haley and her boyfriend Tyler for letting me come up here and record. Thanks to Graham for letting me stay in her house. And <laughs> I know Graham listens to every podcast. And so I uh, just appreciate it. And I appreciate all of our uh, patrons for supporting the podcast and uh, just hope everybody has a great week and uh, man, I'm ready for the weekend but I'm ready for next week already love it um, yeah patrons look out for more content we're going to be sending content directly to you in the next couple weeks and you get to tune in every week and see our ugly mugs now on YouTube it's pretty cool <laughs> it's awesome again <laughs> thanks for all the support and uh, Carter have a good weekend and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week YouTube brother later peace
Later. Peace. Later. Peace. See ya. And then this is the part where you and I usually BS for a little bit, and then I'll take some of this and put it on the back end.